This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Congressman Seth Moulton, who represents Massachusetts' 6th District in the United States House of Representatives. They discuss the Israel-Hamas war and other national defense and security challenges facing the United States. Congressman Moulton, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Roger. Thanks for having me. Well, you serve as the representative of the 6th Congressional District in Massachusetts. Um, you've represented that district since 2015, uh, and you are a member in the Armed Services Committee uh, and also on the Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and Chinese Communist Party. You're also a Marine, uh, having uh, completed Marine Officer Candidate School program uh, and from Harvard. Uh, so there's a combination there uh, that really stands out. Were you always interested in military affairs and serving in the U.S. military? No, I really wasn't, actually. Uh, I uh, went to college, was uh, influenced by probably the most important mentor of my life. He was actually the school minister. Now, I wasn't the most religious person ever, but every time I heard him preach, I felt like it made me a better person. And Reverend Professor Peter Gobes was his name, uh, one of the most popular professors on campus, New York Times bestselling author, and someone who really challenged us as Harvard students, people who had been given great privilege and opportunity to do something to give back. He said, you've got to find a way to serve. And so as I was approaching senior year, I looked at a lot of different options. I looked at teaching overseas, joining the Peace Corps. But at the end of the day, I had so much respect for these 18-year-old kids who serve on the front lines of our nation's military that that's, that's where I decided to do my part. Incidentally, that's why I also wanted to be in the infantry. I said, I don't want to be riding in a tank while some 18-year-old is slogging through the mud next to me. And so signed up for the Marines uh, and ended up uh, ended up doing four tours in Iraq. Uh, and, and that year, 2002, as, as you just uh, kind of referenced, and that's after 9-11, that was the, the, the moment. Uh, Actually, and- I decided to serve before. I, I okay. graduated in June 2001, made the decision to serve. A lot of my friends thought it was nuts, uh, thought it was crazy. And then, of course, September 11th was a few months later. And then all of a sudden there were lines outside of recruiting stations. I sort of felt like I had, you know, I was proud of making the decision to serve before 9-11. But then the interesting thing is because all my training uh, went on in 2002 uh, when Afghanistan was playing out, I thought I had just missed the war. (laughs) I would never see combat because Afghanistan would be over quickly, much like the Persian Gulf. Uh, No idea that we were going to go into Iraq. Uh, Little did I know that shortly after I graduated from my training pipeline for the infantry officer course in December of 2002, I went home, got a call on Christmas Eve from my future battalion executive officer. Um, who I saw recently, actually in Washington, and he and he said, uh, "When are you coming out to California?" And I said, "Well, I've, I've accumulated a lot of leave. I'm going to come out in a month." And he said, "Nope, you're coming out in a week." And we're oh gosh, trips. And we left. We left about I don't know ten days after I got to California, and ended up in the first company of Marines into Baghdad. Not the normal evolution of a Harvard grad departing from Harvard Yard. That was uh, not the, the, the Wall Street uh, position or or a fancy graduate program, a different sort of uh, graduate school. And thank you for your your, your service and 
being a Marine, uh, uh, I guess you've abandoned the high and tight, but besides that, uh, oh, come on, it's not uh, that. through and through, <laughs> you know, I want to jump, you, you obviously you, you, so much, uh, uh, of what you do and the Congress that certainly I'm familiar with is, is of course representing your district, but, but focusing on national security affairs and, uh, your role in the armed services committee, uh, you've been, uh, become a leading voice and thinker, uh, from that committee and that, that perch. Um, thank you. you know, we look at the war in Gaza, uh, between Israel and Hamas and a lot of people reference it, particularly after October 7th, they think of it as Israel's nine 11. And I'm curious to get your take on that. Um, both as a member of the armed services committee, an expert in, 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 in military affairs, but also someone who served, uh, as we just discussed after nine 11. Well, I mean, I think in, in some sense, it's it's not our place to judge whether this is how Israel uh, sees uh, these absolutely horrific attacks. But but there are clearly parallels. I mean, I don't think that um, that anyone in Israel expected this kind of thing to to happen, you know, to have Hamas actually coming into people's homes, into their living rooms. Um, I visit. Um, uh, Kafarza, one of the places that was attacked um, just a little over a year ago. And I remember sitting in uh, the backyard. It's not the only time I've been there, but it was sitting in the backyard of this uh, lovely woman. And and, and and she was the most peace-loving person, Israeli, you'd, you'd ever meet. Um, and she was talking about how, you know, she's working on peacemaking, but it's hard when you live in a place where uh, Hamas would send uh balloons over the fence with toys, toys um, that were booby-trapped so that their kids would pick up these toys and and get maimed or killed. And that's how they lived every day. And yet even then, they never imagined that Hamas would actually invade their neighborhoods, massacre hundreds of them, and and of course, take hostages, uh, many of whom have have yet to be returned. I just met with one of the hostage families yesterday. Yeah, it, 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 certainly a society is still traumatized. And and the point you make is quite interesting. That uh, was less well known. Uh, you were aware of, but but I think broadly speaking, people were not aware that those communities surrounding Gaza, meaning in, in Israel, uh, many uh, were populated by people who were uh, not just supporters of a peace process or a two-state solution, but activists. And uh, there's been some interesting profiles written about how, you know, they've had to accommodate and, and assimilate what's happened with, with, you know, that their outlook. In many ways, that's why they were there. Some people have asked, why were they living so close to the, to the fence? I mean, I have a picture of myself just standing right in front of the fence. It was right there uh, mm. at the edge of the kibbutz. And um, and and for many for many of these families, it's because they were pursuing peace and they wanted to have a relationship with with the Palestinians on the other side of the fence. Yeah, I'm interested in your take on the military objective. Um, again, the fusion of, of of kind of where you sit today, but also someone who engaged in military combat in Iraq. Uh, Marines were, of course, in Ambar province, some of the uh, most contested kind of battle space the United States faced in Iraq and uh, complex in terms of uh, dealing with insurgency. Uh, Israel's objective, of course, is to destroy Hamas. It's uh, seen the support of that objective by the President of the United States. 
and the Congress, broadly speaking. But of course, uh, you have your stated objective and then the the real art is in, in how do you realize that operationally. And uh, interested in your take in terms of how they're doing that front and, and, and what you think uh, what do you think they should should be doing to, to achieve that objective? Well, Roger, you framed it well, because I think we can all agree with the objective. And it's worth saying, by the way, um, that all over the Arab world, people want to get rid of Hamas, specifically Arab leaders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there might be some support in the Arab street for Hamas, but you talk to privately, you know, the leaders of these leading Arab nations, and they can't stand Hamas. So yeah. there's much broader support than you might think for Israel's goal of eradicating Hamas. Israel cannot have security for its people if Hamas is in power. The Palestinians cannot have security or sovereignty if Hamas is in power. There was a poll just before the October 7th of people in Gaza, and uh, over six out of 10 wanted to get rid of Hamas. So no one benefits by having Hamas in power. But to your point, the question is, how do you achieve that operationally? And one of the lessons that we learned in Iraq is you've got to be very careful in this kind of counterinsurgency fight, which is very much what Israel is in here, to not, in essence, create or recruit more terrorists than you kill. And I'm concerned that operationally, Israel has a plan for killing Hamas operatives, but they're losing sight of the fact that if they kill too many innocent civilians in the process, it's not only a humanitarian crisis and a moral issue, but it's also a real military problem because they will, in essence, push the civilian populace into the arms of the enemy, into the arms of Hamas. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it made that point. I mean, we, we were both together at the Reagan National Defense Forum, uh, you know, moment of shameless self-promotion here on the Reaganism podcast. But we did hear the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, uh, give extensive remarks uh, broadly about U.S. national defense, but specifically on uh, Israel, uh, Israel's war against Hamas and a sector defense made, made a point along those lines. Of course, he, he's well situated to do that given uh, his role uh, in the, the Iraq war and, and, and later in, from central command. Um, you know, one other facet uh, to your point, you know, the difficulty of, of realizing this, this objective, this military objective um, is if you look at what's happened to date is we're, past time this will this recording will, will come out over 65 days since October 7th. Um, you still have rockets being fired uh, from Gaza by Hamas into Israel. And it's just shocking. You think about that with the bombing campaign, the leveling of, of, of Northern Gaza, Israel is pretty transparent about the, the military targets they're taking. And, and the objective, of course, would be at least to suppress uh, the ability uh, for Hamas to launch rockets. It hasn't succeeded fully just yet. Does that surprise you? Well, I mean, sadly, it doesn't. Um, because what we know about these terrorist organizations is they're incredibly resilient. That you might take out some of their leaders, but if you don't have a long-term plan for strategic success to essentially take away their power, then they're gonna find new leaders. They're gonna find new recruits. 
uh, I mean, look, this is a this is a sophisticated crowd. I'm sure that's listening to uh, to you on this podcast, Roger. Here are a few facts to consider. Uh, General McChrystal commissioned a study of the impact of uh, innocent civilian deaths in Afghanistan, and and his staff estimated that for every one innocent civilian you kill, it serves to recruit about ten terrorists. You know, by those numbers estimating around 10,000 civilians killed in Gaza so far, uh, you would say that Israel has recruited 100,000 terrorists while they've killed about, according to their numbers, around 5,000 Hamas operatives. If you compare what's going on in, in Gaza to Fallujah, uh, Israel right now is killing about four innocent civilians for every one Hamas operative that's being killed. Those numbers were totally reversed in Fallujah uh, for every uh, one terrorist that Marines killed in Fallujah, about uh, a half a civilian uh, life was lost. Uh, putting those together, the Marines were four times more effective than uh, the IDF right now uh, at simply taking out uh, taking out the enemy. And so the concern, of course, is that, as Secretary Austin said, uh, they might have some tactical success here, but they're risking strategic defeat if they don't think carefully about their, their strategy. And to come back to where we started, we want Israel to win. And fundamentally, I think, you know, the Palestinians might not say this today, but I think that fundamentally, we all want to get rid of Hamas. So we should all want Israel to win. But the extraordinary cost right now not only has moral consequences, it has military consequences as well. Yeah, I'm glad it go, we want to parse it that way because, um, you know, there are other campaigns uh, in terms of U.S., uh, military operations in Iraq, where the 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 ratio wasn't quite what you were describing with Marines in, in Fallujah, uh, and then the level of kind of international pressure and criticism levied against Israel as it prosecutes its war against Hamas certainly seems to be disproportionate. I mean, um, you know, th this is a uh, a military which I'm sure you agree that uh, not just complies with the the laws of war, but a military that really embraces it. Um, and it's and it's well trained and focuses on it, uh, and of course, Roger. Historically, that's been very true, and there are extraordinary examples of the the lengths to which the IDF goes to warn civilians and things like this. Um, I think we learned some things from them uh, in conducting operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not clear that they are following that advice carefully now. I mean, if you just look at the casualty numbers, they're really, really disproportionate, and 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 I and I think we have to admit that. Let's also just remember that in in Iraq and Afghanistan, we received a lot of international criticism. I mean, right. you know, there's there's certainly a lot being leveled at Israel today, um, but uh, we received a lot of criticism as well. And over time in those wars, we really learned. We learned that the initial invasion of going up against the Iraqi army, a real force-on-force -force situation like you see in Ukraine today, is fundamentally different from fighting uh, a terrorist group uh, in an insurgency campaign. And um, and I'm not sure that Israel is, is heeding those lessons. No, I mean, it, it's it's uh, certainly complex and, and and analogous in the ways you describe with, with Iraq at the same time. Um, you know, this is this is uh, uh, so complex and the history here is so long. I mean, this is this is a, an area, of course, where Israel pulled out of. Um, right. And, and and so now, like it's 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 now they 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 do not want to be back in there. Right. And of course, uh 
um, how do you suppress not only uh, the the rocket attacks, but making sure it doesn't reemerge? And, and the counterinsurgency lessons is 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 a is a good one, but they've tried and tested a few other options as well over the years. Well, I mean, here's the here's the other perspective, right? Stepping stepping back from it. Um, yeah. I'm glad you brought this up, which is that you know, if at the end of the day they go in, they kill a whole bunch of Hamas operatives, but they just leave Gaza a smoldering mess. And they don't have a plan for what comes up, comes next. And fundamentally, a plan that's different from what's happened in the past, then you're right, Roger, they're going to be right back in the same situation. I mean, by some measures, they're still in that situation today because they're still taking rocket attacks from Gaza. And so when you really look at this strategically and you take the long view of this of this decades-long conflict rooted in a, a centuries-long, really, um, you know, clash of cultures here. You've got to have a different thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I wrote well, the, and that, on CNN about this, like in the early days after October 7th, it's aged very well because we met with the Israeli ambassador yesterday and he said to us, we're working on a plan for what comes next. And I said, that's, that's frightening that you're still working on that because you really need to know what's going to come next if you're fighting this war. Well, I enjoyed reading your piece in time uh, as well on this kind of drawing on some of the points you made uh, uh, just a moment ago on, on Fallujah. And, and, and listen, the, the, the situation, Israel can't return there was status quo ante October 7th, you know, uh, even Netanyahu support him or not, you know, it was, it was a, it was a deterrence sort of, you know, we thought they deterred Hamas. Uh, and, and obviously that, that, that failed. Um, well, let's go to the U S views here for a second. Um, you know, a thoughtful voice, uh, democratic party, uh, from Massachusetts, and I'm curious to get your take on uh, some recent polling on, on Americans' views uh, towards uh, the uh, war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, recently, Democrats on the age of 50 said they have more sympathy with Palestinians by a margin of 35% to 13%, while Democrats over 50 sympathize more with Israelis by a margin of 22% to 12%. Uh, strong generational divide. We've seen this in other other areas. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, reflected the you know campus. Harvard certainly got a lot of attention in terms of where Harvard students are. Your alma mater. Um, how do you, you know, give me your take on it and, and thoughts about um, what, if anything, uh, should be done to, you know, to balance it out? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I might uh, I, I might, might mention that we had to set up a whole new web page on our website just for all the criticisms I've leveled at uh, Harvard over the last couple of months. Um, <laughs> I think from a leadership perspective, has really handled this poorly. Um, but look, there's clearly a big generational divide here. And I think there's a couple things going on. Uh, first of all, uh, the generation after World War World War II, and in many ways the baby boomers, were just brought up with the legacy of the Holocaust, so front and center, so you know, mm. close, right? And a lot of a lot of kids have forgotten that. And they don't understand the history of Israel. They don't understand. I mean, there's there's frightening statistics just across America about how many kids just understand the history of the Holocaust and therefore why Israel exists in the first place. At the same time, I think there is an increased appreciation for the plight of the Palestinians. And, and I'm someone who believes that Palestinian freedom, human rights, sovereignty is 
not incompatible with Israeli security. In fact, I think it's essential. I don't think Israel is ever going to be secure unless Palestinians enjoy the same rights and freedoms that they do. Because otherwise, Palestinians are going to continue to be repressed and they're going to continue fighting back against that, right? So what's frustrating to me it's not that there's this generational divide, but the fact that there is actually a lot of common ground here that these divisions paper over or these divisions, uh, you know, obscure, right? Um, just because you support the Palestinians should not mean that you support Hamas. No one should be supporting Hamas. Terrorism is never justified, right? Uh, just because you support uh, Israelis does not mean you should not support Palestinian human rights. And if we could really come together, uh, even just here in America, on on a policy that ultimately uh, would enable peace on both sides, I think we'd find a lot more common ground. Yeah, the distinction and the kind of dispassionate way you present it, you know, pro-Israel, supporting Israel, support Israel security and at the same time, you know, uh, want to support Palestinians and their freedom and human rights. Uh, you know, people may agree, disagree on, on, on how you accomplish that. Um, but what is it's been so shocking to many, uh, certainly here, is uh, the sympathy and support you see from many in this demographic we're discussing for Hamas and the inability to distinguish as you have done clearly here, uh, that there, uh, that's a, that's, that's a very important difference and one there should be a bold and, and bright line between. It, it, it's so essential. And, and that's the piece, like you said, Roger, uh, just to put, put a finer point on it, that that is so disturbing is that you actually have uh, Americans, especially young Americans who who are uh, supporting Hamas. I, I think some of them don't even know what they're doing, but it's very uh, dangerous that they're doing this. And it's, and it's missing this great opportunity to actually find common ground and have a very important, honest debate about what you laid out. How do we get there? What is the solution that makes sense? You know, is it the two-state solution? Even if it is a two-state solution, what does that look like? How do you make the transition? Is there a security force you have to put in? Do you want the involvement of Arab states? There are so many questions that are important to answer here, not just for Palestinians, not just for Israelis, but frankly, for the broader Middle East. Yeah, yeah, uh, good point. And, and and you know we're, it's it's the it's the timing and tactics involved and when you get there which seems to be the debate you know you seem to be focusing emphasizing on it now and and i think there you know others uh, are saying okay they, they this is a society that's about Israel right now. So you know, traumatized, they need to, you know, get the security in place to a certain point where before they can pick up their head and and, and start thinking about next steps. And that seems to be where where we are. You know, that's one other thread. Saying. By the way, I just have to say that's what they're saying. But I worry that they're not actually achieving it. That they're actually making it worse by some of the actions well, they're uh, taking. Yeah. That's, and that's that's what's so concerning right now. And that, and that, that take your your point earlier, and 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 some we talk about military tactics and and, and the military campaign for sure. Um, and, and and events, we'll see what this. What, you know, we're not going to status quo ante. We'll see what how the military campaign changes uh, uh, status on the ground. But certainly, uh, I think everybody agrees that the objective is not to to grow Hamas, it's to destroy it. And so, how, how do you arrive at that? One other one other thread here. Again, we're with Congressman Moulton. Uh, 
senior congressman in this Massachusetts delegation serving on I the armed services. Very old, Roger. <laughs> you know, the issue is I was like, so many people have been retiring. I mean, I've been rocketing up the seniority. Right now. I know. Yeah. All these good Listeners and viewers may not be aware, but, you know, like uh, 15 percent of the House of Representatives, you know, kind of sits on the Armed Services Committee. And you're you're a you're a subcommittee, uh, you know, uh, ranking member and and how many seats away are you from the chair spot i don't want adam smith to get concerned but <laughs> no he doesn't have anything to be concerned about there's still a good number between me and him but it's not a lot i mean it's you know yeah. five or something like that right um, that, that's well that's uh good for for your uh, district and and massachusetts and the country you you have that seniority i want to get one other one other thread we we're talking about uh israel's war against hamas um Give me your take on to what extent this is also America's war. I mean, just to this point, uh, we've been discussing kind of what's in Israel's best interest and then what's interest, you know, uh, for the plight of the Palestinian people as well and, and broadly for the region. But over 30 Americans were killed on October 7th. You referenced before you, you just met uh, with American hostages. There are, are uh, at least eight American hostages, more American hostages being held this time than any time since we had hostages uh, in Tehran uh, for 444 days. Uh, these are, are are huge challenges in its own right. And then you layer on to that uh, the, the over, I think, 90 attacks on uh, four deployed U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. No doubt you're focusing on this on the Armed Services Committee and then the attacks on on U.S. targeting U.S. forces and 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 uh, ships and presence uh, coming from the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, you see, there's a lot going on here, which you know, seems to all be tied to the events of October 7th, where it's not only Israel and Israelis being targeted, but it's Americans, Americans have been killed, Americans who are uh, hostages, and American service members who are being targeted and injured as well. How do you how do you kind of work that into your thinking about uh, the region right now and U.S. interests? No, that, that's absolutely right, Roger. And you left out an important uh, group of Americans, too, which is that there are a, a number of Americans who've been killed in Gaza. Um, yeah. Palestinian Americans and uh, th there are mosques in America um, that are holding literally daily services for family members um, who are dying as a result of the bombing campaign. So there are a lot of connections here to America. And one of the things that um, we we want that's very clearly in our national security interest is not only to support Israel in defeating Hamas, but also to avoid a wider regional war in the Middle East. I mean, we, the last thing we want is to get back involved, bogged down um, in a Middle Eastern war. And this is one of the challenges for the administration, a place where they've received some criticism. Many people have been saying, why don't you respond more forcefully to the, to the attacks, uh, Iran-backed attacks on U.S. troops, for example? What we're trying to do is send a message that you can't attack U.S. troops, but do so in a way that doesn't actually spark a wider regional conflict, which would be bad for us. It would be bad for Israel. It would be bad for, I mean, I think we can agree pretty much everyone uh, in the Middle East. So that's one of the strategic interests that we have at play here. That's that's a tough balancing act, but something that we're trying to trying to trying to pursue. Another strategic interest here is just the fundamental principle of standing with our allies. And that's so important because as the world breaks down between a group of autocracies that are increasingly banding together, the Russians and Chinas and Irans and North Koreas of the world, uh, against uh, a group of 
democracies that have been historic allies. We need to show autocratic leaders like Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, that we are going to stick together and that we're going to stick up for democracy, that we're going to stay with the fight for freedom in Ukraine, that we're going to stand by the allies we've made commitments to all around the world. Because instead, if the message is that America is not a reliable partner, that the West won't stick together, then it's going to encourage these autocrats to do more of this. To It's going to encourage the terrorists around the, the globe to attack democracies further. And so the message of deterrence that we send by standing with our allies is incredibly important in, in all of these conflicts. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you ended talking about deterrence and, and, and started with Iran and, and, and got to this emerging axis. Um, Iran, Russia, China, North Korea can add uh, Venezuela to the list. And, and, and as a group of people, I don't know, that's a club nobody really would want to join. Uh, but here's the challenge. But, is, is, is there are a lot of countries we haven't mentioned that are still making this choice? Yes. And, and there are countries that we might not – it's easy for us to say join us, not them – but there are a lot. I mean, look at Africa. China's invested. Yeah, the global South is a is yeah Africa, right? So, so this is a this is a, an on. I actually wrote an op-ed on Fox about this about the autocracies versus democracies and the fight for democracy going forward. And there are a lot of countries hanging in the balance here. Um, these sort of global no, swing states. No doubt, and and it's. Um... Uh, we had uh, our commander Southcom, for example, and it was the first time we talked about uh, the Monroe Doctrine uh, really being relevant because of the penetration of, of China, uh, not just China, but 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 uh, in in our hemisphere. And but I want to go back to to escalation and, and Iran uh, and deterrence because sure. it really seems to be um, get your thoughts on this. One of the big disagreements. I think that really runs through uh, the Biden administration's foreign policy and national security and, and, and those that have criticized it is on how we view escalation and and you know whether it's uh, dealing with the northern border in Israel and Lebanon or how we respond to Iranian backed elements, uh, whether it's IRGC or other of its franchises attacking U.S. interests and U.S. forces. The, the Biden administration seems to be more measured, fear that it would escalate. And I think the counter argument, certainly view that I, I would subscribe to uh, on many of these instances, is that the lack of escalation invites escalation by the other side. And it moves the status quo to something that really is against uh, U.S. interests. I think we've seen that uh, in these cases playing out in, in Syria and Iraq, and that um, Sometimes when you hit back and hit back strong, I'm speaking to the Congress's Marine, right? The effect often is, is that they can't get up again and, and challenge you. And, and the Biden administration seems to be weighing that calculus uh, differently. Uh, do you think we should be coming back a little bit stronger against those elements? And you were, you were referencing it a minute ago. Look, I think that this is a, a tough balance to strike with it, with every move. And I have criticized the Biden administration sometimes for not uh, coming back strong enough. Uh, by the way, I leveled the exact same criticism at the Trump administration. Remember, we had a drone yeah. shot down over Iran, and actually they were able to steal our technology. The Trump administration did nothing. They were just right. 
no response at all. I think that's also dangerous. Uh, later on, they took out uh, Soleimani, the, the Iranian, the IRGC commander. Um, in that case, some people said you went too far, right? The point is every administration is trying to find this balance where they hit back hard, but not too hard, that it empowers the hardliners in Iran and they feel like they have to take action. At the end of the day, I'm a proponent for regime change in Iran. Now, I'm not saying we should go over go over and do that ourselves. I think that would be a terrible idea for America to get involved in a war with Iran. But regime change is what we should really want. We should want these protests to succeed. We should want the moderates in Iran. By the way, a lot of Iranians love America. That's something that's hard yeah. to imagine, but the polling is pretty sh shocking. A lot of Iranians love Americans. We want to have those moderates empowered. One of the risks of hitting back too hard is it actually empowers the worst elements of the Iranian regime. So this is a good debate to have. It's an important debate to have. I don't think it's black and white. Yeah, well, definitely a lot of gray here. Um, but I, I am interested in your view on Soleimani and and, and parenthetically the, the take on regime change in Iran. Glad the way you you explained it because uh, you could advocate for regime change and, and build a policy around it short of putting boots on the ground and trying to carry that out, effectuate it militarily. That that was lost after, uh, in many people's minds. You can't get to that point post Iraq, but uh, I commend you and others like you who have the courage to, to speak about in those terms and, and, and deal with those who want to go ad hominem and, and, and wag their finger at you despite the, the without any nuance. So, uh, but, but, the question for you is Soleimani. Um, my sense is, and, and you're right to characterize kind of the the kind of serpentine way that the Trump administration got there, but they got there that it really did have a strong deterrent effect. And there was risk involved, but but you did see this kind of um, reduction in, in, you know, Iranian mischief making in the region, which is perhaps kind of addressed it too delicately. Right. They 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 they, they held back on the troublemaking. No, I, I agree with that. And uh, and politicians are never supposed to admit mistakes. Um, but I'll say I was much more skeptical of this uh, when it when when they took that action, just because uh, I was concerned about whether this would, again, just empower the hardliners and result in more American lives lost in the long run. But that really hasn't been the case. Uh, so I think that, that, you know, looking back in retrospect, the analysis of the Suleimani strike uh, is that it was actually effective as a deterrent. Um, we're going to move on to some of the pending legislation before you and the Congress. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, of course, is the featured piece of legislation that the Armed Services Committee works on annually. It authorizes all the policy for the Department of Defense and really hits on all the major security issues the United States military and the country more broadly faces. That measure is going through. Uh, it does a lot. And in the areas we're talking about, uh, particularly China, uh, Iran's uh, Ukraine as well. Uh, give me a highlight or two of, of what you uh, are hoping to see come through and hit the president's desk for signature with the NDAA. The most important things in this bill are the ways that we're modernizing our forces, the ways we're saying that what we were doing last year is not good enough for the threats that we face this year. And God knows the world is changing. And I 
I'm sad to say, getting much more dangerous uh, by the week, it seems sometimes. Certainly, so much has happened uh, between this year, this year and last. And that's why we need to have a bill. And that's why we need to have budgets. We can't just do these continuing resolutions. We can't risk shutting the government down when we need a military to be responsive and funded for the next fight. So it's incredibly important that we pass a defense bill. Historically, we've always been able to do it. But from a political perspective, we've always been able to pass it despite the objections of some left-wing Democrats and some right-wing Republicans, isolationists on the right uh, who don't mm -hmm. want that much on defense, and uh, liberals, uh, peace-loving uh, liberals on the left who say they object to the defense bill because it's too much money. It's always relied on the core Democrats and Republicans in the center to get it passed. I sure hope the speaker's doing his math right. I was speaking to uh, Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin, about this this morning, um, because we're both concerned that when you add together the objections on the left and the objections on the right, especially because the the objections on the right have really grown as the, um, uh, the, the, the right wing of the Republican Party in the House has gotten more power over the last few years. I mean, we're really worried that it might not actually pass the House. So we should. Wow. Be and this is a, this is a, a a bill that normally enjoys, I don't know. Uh, How can you get the troops? That's right. It should yeah. be. 95%. I mean, you could count the number of members uh, total who, who would oppose it. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so this is the sort of thing that you got to do some vote counting on that. That that's a, a, a huge change. Uh, if that were to, were to play out, you know, you mentioned that objections on the right and the left, and that, that certainly has been playing out uh kind of more frequently over the past few years uh, of too much money. And, and, you know, this won't surprise you. We've talked over the years. My, my sense is, is that as great work as, as the armed services committees have done, and they've added money year over year, given the, the challenges and you, you could, you could talk about these challenges in lots of different ways, regional challenges, war in Europe, war in the Middle East, emerging conflict with around Taiwan and, and the Indo-Pacific. You could talk about the need for modernization for the wars tomorrow. You've, you've been a leader in the Congress on that, but the need to have a force that can maintain the peace today. I mean, all these things, uh, industrial capacity, you've, you've focused on that and, and Ukraine certainly has revealed the real uh, limits we have there. There's a price tag to all of that. And the NDAA, I think would be about 3% of GDP historical low. I mean, you know, Jimmy Carter, when he was leaving office, uh, a period of time we pay attention here at the at the Reagan Institute, you know, he he pushed five percent real growth. I mean, way above that number. Uh, do you get the sense that this is enough to get us there, or we're going to have to do more? Well, here's the thing. What we really need to do is be much smarter about how we're spending our money. Because if you look at what the Marine Corps has done over the last three, just, just three years, they have rapidly modernized with the same budget because they've gotten rid of a lot of old stuff they don't need. The other services need to do that too. We still have a lot of big, old, heavy manpower intensive platforms that are big fat targets for the Chinese uh, in the Pacific. And we need to replace them with autonomous uh, vehicles, with AI enabled uh, weapons, with more missiles, uh, less artillery, fewer tanks. That kind of transition is incredibly important to our national security. But the interesting thing is where we are with technology today, it also costs less money. So I do think we've got to be conscious of your question. I mean, are we investing enough in defense, but we also have to make sure we're not wasting money on defense. I think the Marine Corps set an example that we all need to 
to to pay, to pay heed. Yeah, to it, it, it's a it's an important story what the Marine Corps has done, no doubt. I uh, generally look at that as an and, not an or. Uh, it's going to take more, and we have to do it smarter. Um, uh, just for all the all the different demands and, and challenges we face. All right, give me your lightning round here. We're going with our favorite Reagan quote speech book. Give us all three, two, or just one. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love peace through strength. I mean, I mean, I think that's important. We, that's quoted a lot. You guys use that all the time. Um, I have to say that one of my favorite political quotes is I'm someone who ran for office fairly young and people criticized me. You know, why don't you run for the school committee first? Uh, <laughs> uh, was when he was in this debate with Mondale and he said, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna laugh. Totally disarming yeah, and got Mondale to laugh, right? I mean, it's just a great political moment, huh? That's right. That's right. Great seeing you. Uh, you too. Really, really good conversation. I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. <laughs>